Hello, Unruffled listeners. So we have produced a year's worth of content and have approximately 125,000 downloads to date. We can hardly believe it. We would like to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to help us continue to put out quality, meaningful content, but we have a big ask. We are both mothers and creative soulmates. We are multi-passionate and have many projects going on at once and feel like this is the right time to ask for some support. We talk a lot on our show about valuing your creative work and it's time we walk our talk. This is where you come in. So we've set up a Patreon account and your generous Patreon donations will help us to pay for hosting fees, better equipment, and assist us in our dedication to keep showing up here every week. In the future, we hope to take our show on the road and offer creative workshops in select cities across the United States, maybe even interview a few of our guests in person. In order to make any of this happen, we foresee the need to generate some revenue from the show. We believe that our listeners want to support us, so we're hoping that you can help us make these dreams become a reality. Our ask isn't huge. We're some sensible girls, right? We're really just asking for a dollar pledge per episode. That's $4 a month, less than a large decaf vanilla latte from Starbucks. A total steal, if you ask me. We'd love to offer some perks in the future, but first we need to get this campaign off the ground. We can circle back and check with you all later in the year to see what, if any, perks sound good to you. And we're just so grateful for our listeners, and we hope that we continue to earn your support. You can find our campaign on patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. Thanks, guys. The recovery revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 56. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) I am great. I am great. I I, uh, went to a Korean day spa yesterday and... Yeah, kind of nice, kind of not nice. Really? Yeah, they kind of beat you up. All nice. (laughs) They kind of, they kind of get rough with you, Sandra. Oh yeah. See, I don't know if I like so much the really uh, rough massage, but it's it's like um, it's like the John Mellencamp song "Hurt So Good." So it's a little bit. They just scrub you and scrub off all your skin, basically. Mm. They scrubbed off all the hair on my left arm, so it's really smooth. <laughs> I yeah, kept going like, I don't know. Yeah, okay. it's a trip. <laughs> it, it's a trip. But I had gone in October and really enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's kind of what I figured out. It's kind of like childbirth because you forget the pain. Like, I just remembered all the good stuff from the last massage, so I kind of forgot. Uh-huh. <laughs> So when I went, um, 
when I went, it was really busy down in um, Japantown in San Francisco. And um, I parked and I got the last parking space in a parking structure and kind of uh, walked to the spa. And there's some people out and they were barricading the street. And I was like, oh, some having some event. Go into the day spa for like, you know, three, three and a half hours and get totally scrubbed down. You feel like you were reborn after this, Sandra. Hmm. It's like a whole, you are, you've just shed a whole layer of skin. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're moisturized. You are, um, your hair is done up in a special towel. They wrap it in these really unique, crazy ways that stay on your head. And you just look like you're glowing when you come out of there. Mm-hmm. And um, when I walked out of the spa, I walked out onto the street and it was the Cherry Blossom Festival was what was happening. There were thousands and thousands of people up and down the street oh wow had i known this i would have never gone into san francisco i've i've avoided the cherry blossom festival you couldn't get out could you not get out you couldn't cross the street to get to my car We, we did eventually we had to just walk a ways um but because of my anxiety i never would have gone into the heart of japantown on cherry blossom festival day never (laughs) And because I didn't know, I just like kind of like, it's like Mr. Magoo a little bit like, oh, go into the parking garage. Oh, wow. There's only one spot left. Mm, Lucky me. Um, Walk into the salon, have this beautiful experience and painful, mildly painful experience. And then I walk out and it's this whole festival and I would have stayed home. I would have not gone and done that thing. I would have prevented myself from, you know, having a really nice day. Because I would have been all anxious about everything. But because I didn't know it was happening, Sandra, it just happened. And it was very funny to me that um, that I was in the heart of the city during this thing. And that um, I survived just fine. You didn't die. I didn't die. <laughs> grace over drama. Accidental grace over drama. <laughs> so that's what I did. And I'm a little sore today. Um from all the beating up and the, you know, she got on my back too. She hops up on the table. It's a whole thing. Wow, it's a yeah. whole thing. Uh-huh. But it wow. was, it, it was an experience. I'll I, go again I've in six never, months. <laughs> yeah. I've never been to a Korean day spa. We have a few like little small, you know, places, mm-hmm. um, to get Korean massage. Um, but because we don't have, we don't have those, um, parts of town like other big cities do like Houston does and but you know like San Francisco Chicago LA you know New York of course we don't have those um pockets of town that are specific to um you know uh I don't know an ethnic group where you know like you you said it was in Chinatown we don't have a Chinatown we don't you know have things like that in Austin yeah but um, so I've never been to one. I, it, I've gotten several massages, but one time I got a massage, um, that I kind of have a little bit of PTSD from. I was very, <laughs> very hungover and it was like one of those really, really intense, um, hard mm-hmm. massages. And when I was done and I know that it just sort of like was working those toxins around in me, I'm sure now mm-hmm. in hindsight, but I felt like I was going to vomit the entire day 
It was gross and it really gave me PTSD. And so like, I really, so like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, no, no, I don't. Yeah. Well, that's like yoga for me after, you know, I would always do yoga hungover. That's why I have this, this resistance to, there's like this memory that's kind of been seared, like yoga equals hangover. Mm -hmm. That's what I used to try to do to cure my hangover. You know, like I'm fine. So your massage is connected to you being hungover. You're probably like, nope, I don't want any of that. No, I want like a gentle sort of rubbing, not that really hard kneading. Yeah. Thing. Well, they, yeah. they 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 literally scrub you with like a brush in every part of you, and I'm not exaggerating. Every part of you, every part of you, and um, you're kind of just like at their mercy. Uh-huh. And I just kind of needed to just, I needed to, I needed that to happen. I think <laughs> I had a crazy week and I was like, okay, everything I just need to let go and let this woman just do whatever she's going to do. And she did it for 90 minutes. And it was, it was wow. like, I, I walked out of there a new person, a different person. Yeah. So that was my, that was my weekend. Really? You shed it a whole <laughs> did. <laughs> what about you? Anybody, anybody mildly torture you that you paid for? Mm-mm. <laughs> Hmm. Not lately. No. Uh, no, I am getting ready to go camping this weekend, and I'm really excited. That's my, my big news, yeah. Where, we, you, where do you go? Well, um, it's only about an hour away, but it feels farther than that, you know, because it's by a lake, and it's, um, you know, you can see the stars, and uh, there's, um, we don't sleep in a tent. We sleep in, like, these little just cinder block very basic cabins i mean really they only house like bunk beds and a little table and chairs and there's an air conditioner in there if we need it but um and it keeps the bugs out kind of you know Mm -hmm. yeah but it's really everything else you do outside and yeah we put up a hammock and my mom's coming my mother-in-law's coming and um we're going to play lots of Scrabble, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a forced stop because really, you know, there's the other side of me that's saying, oh, honey, you have way too much to do to go, you know, do nothing for three days. Hmm. But um, Do the opposite. A, yeah, it's a forced stop. So, I mean, of course, we all have choices, but I really, I don't have a choice. I would let down a lot of people if I didn't go. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it'll be good. I need to, I need to stop. I need to relax. I need to check out. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of, not a lot of Wi-Fi, not a lot of uh, cell phone good. service. Yeah. So, it's a real checking out. Um, I'm a little bummed though, because there's a meetup on Saturday hosted by Jen and, um, some people are coming. I know, I know. And I'm, and, um, Amy Lanier, I think is going to be there and 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 Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, lots of, lots of amazing women that I love. Um, but uh, I think I'm I'm gonna miss it. I could drive into town for it, but I don't know if I will. So yeah, well, I'm kind of leaving it up in the air. Yeah, and um, and they know that you'll get them on the next one. Yeah, right? you'll see them. There's another one. I'm going away this weekend too. I'm going to Bodega Bay, which is only seven miles away. <laughs> 
But I'm picking up three girlfriends from the airport on um, Friday. And they are from the, they're the gals that I met at the writing retreat on Orcas Island. Um, I met the year before I stopped drinking. And we get together once a year. And they're coming out to Bodega Bay. We got a house. And I plan on finishing um, my Bodega Bay series. I'm doing a, a series of watercolor studies um, for my upcoming show that I, um, I'm going to finish out there in Bodega Bay. And that's nice. where I used to live and work and own the wine bar and drink the most. And I typically try not to go back there. And um, I haven't been ready to go back there. So I'm going to spend the whole weekend there, which I think being surrounded and supported by them and making art, I think it will all be really, really good. So I will be I will be with some gals. Hmm. hmm. So do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, yes, real quick quick um because we have such a great interview today um real quick i will promote that on uh june 2nd and you will probably hear me promote this uh several times in the next uh, couple of weeks but on june 2nd um i am co-hosting a workshop with Sarah Andrews here in Austin and Sasha Carellis is coming from California and it's going to be on June 2nd from 9 to 2. All the information is on my website. Go to theunruffled.com. You can click on the top bar there. It'll take you right to the event. Um, we are going to, it's going to be a day of, of yoga and some creative exploration and we're going to make malas and we're going to have a little snack and lunch and drink lots of beverages, fizzy waters and whatnot. And, um, again, more information is on my site and you're coming, Tammy and oh, Natalie yeah. is coming and it's going to be so fun. Yeah. Come. It's close to the airport. Make a whole That's weekend right. of it. That's okay. what I'm doing. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, this can't this fun can't happen without me. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to just um encourage people to sign up for my newsletter on my website, tammysalas.com, and give a rating to the show if you have a minute on iTunes. Um, just really quickly, you can just leave a star rating takes a second if you have a, a, a you know if you have a little bit longer than that you can write a short review um but we appreciate that i think that's all i got yeah so who is coming on the podcast today we are so excited yes well we uh, a listener of ours um left a comment in our secret facebook group a couple months ago about you know you should check out this gal uh, i think she'd be right up your alley for the show and then in the hustle and bustle of life and things, I, it kind of, I've forgotten about it. And then mm-hmm. she, I think I wrote her name down somewhere. Yeah. 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 And so, um, it's Janelle Hanchette and she created the website. Hanchette. Sorry. Hanchette. I, I can't get <laughs> no. it right. It's, Sorry, it's, Janelle. I'm telling you, it's the don't think of Say it again. Say it again. Yeah. Janelle Hanchett. Thank you. And she created the website Renegade Mothering in 2011 because she needed to know if the rest of the mothering world was crazy or if she was. <laughs> um, so writing after her kids went to bed and while she was supposed to be working, Janelle attracted an audience of millions of readers. She holds a BA in English from the University of California at Davis and an MA in English Literature from Sacramento State. 
She lives in Northern California with her four children and husband, Mac, who thinks getting dressed up means shaving his forearm tattoo. <laughs> I love that. So her book, I'm Just Happy to Be Here, a memoir of renegade mothering, is out tomorrow, May 1st. And you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at any probably any independent bookstore near you. Um, she also, you also mentioned that her site is renegademothering.com. Um, she, we were lucky enough to get an advanced reader's copy of her book. And we talk about her book a whole lot in this interview, but it is excellent. Yeah. Ugh, it's so good. It's a page turner, seriously. And she, Janelle is such a good writer. It's so raw. It's a story of how kids don't necessarily get you sober. Yeah. Um, and it's some of it's hard to read, uh, but it's the truth. And spoiler, it has a happy ending. <laughs> it really does have a happy ending. Yeah. Um, but man, it's such a good book. Yeah, reading that book and then just every time she had a struggle or a slip or, you know, I just, it hurt. It hurt while oh, I was reading it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this next time she's going to, okay. She's and you're gonna... rooting for her the yeah. whole time, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's really amazing. Her story is incredible. It's amazing. Janelle has a huge following um, from... Mom, you know, a, a mom following. I mean, she, she has a mommy blog, I guess yeah. you could say. And um, she has a huge, huge audience already. Um, so if you are not familiar with her, you're going to love her. Um, I I wasn't. I kind of skipped the whole mommy blogging thing. My kids are older, you know, and so – or I don't know. My older one's older. My younger one, I but at that point I had just tried a couple of mommy blogs and decided that I did not resonate with those mothers. Now, if I would have found Janelle, yeah. I, it would have been bingo. Um, but uh, so she has a huge following if you if you're going to if you're listening to us because you are a big Janelle fan. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, but our sober, our, our moms in recovery are really going to resonate yeah. with this interview. Yeah. And she, uh, and her Facebook community is Renegade Mothering. And um, you can search for it on Facebook and join there. And I was, yeah, I, I had shared in the interview and I get, you guys can listen, but I, I had found her before while I was drinking and I rejected, I didn't want to read what she was writing. Um, cause that's what I do when something is maybe good for me. <laughs> so I, when I started looking through things again, I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've been here before. Um, but I didn't know the depths of her story and that's what she kind of just so bravely shares. And a lot of, um, her book takes place in Northern California and towns, my neighboring towns. So it really, the place, um, and knowing where she was, um, having these struggles and where she recovered was interesting to me. Um, but of course it'd be interesting to anyone. It's just like any town USA, you know, she's a mom yeah. who is struggling. I just yeah. loved how honest and open she was. And I think our readers are going to really dig her. Our readers, yeah. our listeners, our listeners. <laughs> who will read her. Out, right. Check out her, um, 
her web page and her Facebook page, I think especially is where she will announce or she has already announced all of her stops on her book tour. Yeah. I know I don't think it's definitive, but most of them are kind of West Coast. Um, and you're going to one, right? I am. I am. I'm going to go to, there's going to be one this month, um, in May, uh, in Santa Rosa at Copperfields books on May 19th. So if anybody is local and interested, I am going and a few other gals, I know I've invited to go. So everyone is welcome. If you guys want to meet for tea beforehand, we can do that. Um, so yeah, May 19th at Copperfields in Santa Rosa, and you can listen to Janelle talk and probably read from her book and get her to sign it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I'm so jealous. I come to Austin, Janelle. We'd love to have you. <laughs> oh, okay. So enjoy the interview. I think you guys will. Yeah, enjoy, Janelle. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Tell our listeners where we are chatting with you from. Where are you at? Where are you located? I am in. Yolo County near Sacramento in Northern California. That is kind of funny. Why? <laughs> Yolo that you only live once, oh, right? Yolo. Yeah. I like is that. it really Y O L O Yolo? Like yeah. the like the kids say? Oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were here first. <laughs> right. Now, I just learned that. <laughs> just like I learned FOMO not too long ago, I learned about YOLO, but not because I'm cool or hip or young, just because my kid. Yeah, you've heard it so many times. Yeah, <laughs> like what is that acronym? Why is everyone using that? <laughs> especially weird when you live in a county named YOLO. Mm -hmm. When I see it, I immediately think of my county, not you only live once. Right, right. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm sorry, I started off this way. <laughs> Well, and now for me, every time I hear about Sacramento, um, I can't help but think of Lady Bird. I'm sure you saw that movie, right, Janelle? I have not seen it yet. You haven't? <gasps> oh, I like it. You would I, like I, it. I can't wait to see it. I just haven't yet. Especially I, I in the movie. Especially, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You have four children, and yeah, you work, and you're, yeah, I get it. Yeah, but um, uh, I, I took my teenager to see it because I just kept hearing how good it was and we just snuck out and went to see it and it was so good and especially in light of reading your book uh, you would really like it because it's a complicated story it's mostly a story about being a parent mm -hmm. I think now of course other people might have different takeaways but um, it's it's a it's a good it's a great movie and you know being close to Sacramento you'll oh yeah obviously geek out over that part yeah it's definitely Sacramento's very excited to have a movie about us <laughs> we're not very fancy I mean we're not very you know we're kind movie of worthy. by San Francisco so it's fun to be the center of attention for a minute oh well when I was um when we were when I was reading your book um I'm just happy to be here a lot of the places resonated with me you were in my neck of the woods so yes. all of the towns all of the places you talked about all of the you know the apartments and the treatment centers and all of those things I was like oh there 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 um can I ask your age Janelle I'm 39 39 oh I, I know yeah. My 30. yeah yeah it's, I was actually surprised at what a role 
place ended up having in that book. A couple early readers mentioned it to me, a couple of friends who read it. They said, gosh, this is really sort of a love story to Northern California, which surprised me because I didn't, Hmm. didn't do that purpose. But in looking at the book, I really see that 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 happened. Well, uh, yeah, I was definitely traveling with you wherever you were going in the, you know, your rehab out here in West County, um, towards the ocean, you know, and then, you know, going up the coast to Mendocino when you're going to the bus. Anyhow, I'm jumping ahead, I know, but I just place definitely, I think when I write, I don't write, I love my town so much and it's in my art and all of that, but I don't, um, when I write, I don't think I write about it all because I think it would be boring. Maybe. I don't know why I think that, because when I read yours, I was like, no, I like it. It's centered. It grounded. It gave it a grounding in a way. And not just because I live here, but but because you just kept identifying it. Um, you know, you were traveling, you were growing and you were kind of going through those cities and towns. I don't know. I liked it. I liked that it definitely had a place in your book. Yeah, I did, too. It even resonated with me not being from there. Um, but, you know, I'm I look like you girls are Californians. I'm a Texan. And so place has a lot of meaning for me as well and the fact that your grandparents were there and your your whole entire family is all around there I I I really liked that through line as well thank you yeah well um so how long have you been sober Janelle can we start off with that nine years wow nine years on March 5th oh that's huge Right before I turned 30. So I was three weeks away from my 30th birthday. So whatever age I am into my 30s, that's how many years sober I am. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations on that. That's huge. Thank you. That's mm-hmm. huge. Um, so for our listeners, so that they can kind of jump in here, but since we're kind of ahead of the game um, reading your book, then um, can you share maybe um, how you came to sobriety? The you know, not the long version because they have to buy your book. <laughs> right. <laughs> the entire long extended version. Yeah. Because it's so good. But if you could just share a snippet of that so they can kind of identify and maybe just, you know, just inform the listener. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, um, I grew up, my parents divorced when I was about six or seven, six, seven. I just wrote a book on this and now the ages are all flirting <laughs> divorce when I was seven and my mom and brother and I moved to central California near San Luis Obispo this little town called Atascadero and uh, my mom started taking us to the LDS church which she had been a member of as a child and then left for 18 years while married to my dad um, and so I ended up being growing up half sort of in the Mormon church, but also kind of half out because my mother had this 20 year history of not being in the church. And she was going to hear rock and roll shows and drinking Southern comfort with Janis Joplin and the hate. And so this very different sort of period of her life, significant period of her life. And so she sort of brought this open-mindedness and the sort of wildness to <laughs> Uh, the church in the sense that we were definitely not a classic Mormon family. So I, I had this sort of interesting dichotomy growing up of the LDS church on the weekends and then also going to Bob Dylan shows and, and going on these crazy road trips all over. And and um, and I mention all of that because I think it had a, you know, this sort of being rooted in, in the church and being shown this way of life that was very clean and um, 
and I, I really invested in that and I really believed that stuff. And my dad was not Mormon and he, he, um, he was an alcoholic and he got sober actually about 13 years ago. But, um, all of these things were very openly discussed. And so I knew, you know, that alcoholism was genetic and I knew I should never drink. And I had this Mormon sort of foundation and this very loving mother and, um, loving father as well, although he lived quite a ways away. And, uh, but for whatever reason, when I hit about 15, I started having these really persistent questions about the church. And I just, I had this feeling in, in me of just never being quite right internally. You know, like I, I write about it in my book, but I remember walking around the playground as a child and watching the kids play tetherball and, and be kids. And I remember looking at them and thinking like, how the fuck do they know how to do this? Like, how do they know how to be children on a playground? And, but at the same time, I couldn't ask them to play with me or sit with me. And so I had this sort of bluster from a very young age that I had to present to the world that I knew what I was doing. And so I would sort of square my backpack and act like I had somewhere to go instead of walk up to the kids and be like, Hey, would you play with me? Or would, can we be friends? And that feeling of just discontent and afraid, it never went away until I took my first drink of alcohol. And the second I took that drink, um, I felt a relief and a peace inside of me that I thought I found the key to life. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, shit, all I got to do is drink this stuff. And I finally feel the way I thought I should feel all the time. And all of that internal crap just went away immediately. And um, I was going to pursue that <laughs> right, right. as far as I needed to. Um, hmm. And I just walked away from the church and I walked away from all of it. And there was some stuff in my childhood that, you know, I go into a little bit in the book, but... I had some, you know, insecurities and some instability that I'm, I would not blame for my alcoholism by any means, but I think it definitely gave me a rather F you attitude by the time I was 16 or 17. I was pretty done with the whole thing. Um, and I found, but you know, I didn't go straight to the gutter. I mean, I went to college. I went to UC Davis. I was always a rather high performing student in high school and um, honor student in college. When I went to Spain, I studied abroad in Spain in my third year, and uh, that was kind of where I think I really crossed the line into um, alcoholism and drug addiction. Because for me, I often get start drinking and then I go seek other substances. Um, and so, and then I came back from Spain and sort of found myself pregnant and married. <laughs> right, pretty quickly, right? Uh -huh. Like eight months, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I Back in like June or July of to the year 2000, and I found out I was pregnant. I met a man named Mac in October 2000, and I found out I was pregnant with his baby in February. Oh. Um, I was 21 when I found out I was pregnant, and I was 22 when I had her. And so I know that that sentence, I just found myself pregnant and married, doesn't make sense to anyone except alcoholics, probably. Right. <laughs> there you We're go. Always the victim of our circumstances. <laughs> You know, just a series of unfortunate, you know, not all unfortunate, but, you know, I, I, right. just, 
I was not consciously really present living my life. I was more just sort of drinking and putting out fires. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so here I was pregnant and that was, and, and then we got married after she was born shortly after. And I, that was the first time I really tried to clean up my act. Um, I really tried to, you know, I, I, um, I was drinking every day and I would try not to. And eventually I had postpartum depression and I got treated for that. And then I got, a, I got a little job as a receptionist and I thought, okay, here I go in the suburban life. And I'm thinking my life's going to work out. I got to straight, you know, straighten up my act. And, um, and every day I would wake up and I'd say, okay, I'm not going to drink today. And, and something would happen to me around 3 p.m. It was like, you know, and I meant it. You know, I'd take some Advil, I'd smoke a cigarette, I'd drink some coffee. I'd be like, not drinking today. I'm not going to do this again. And, um, wait, you know, wake up with a hangover and, and something. And I'd hold fast and strong until about, you know, 2 or 3 p.m. And all of a sudden something would flip in my mind and I'd go, you know, Maybe I wasn't that bad. <laughs> a little extreme about the no drinking today. Yeah, we'll just that have bad. some wine. And um, and I would go to the store and I would get some wine. And the next thing I knew, I'd be buying another bottle of Captain Morgan or whatever. And I and I did this experiment for a few years and failed, um, which began my sort of mad seeking of what was wrong with me. Right? You know, I'm not stupid. I could see that I couldn't quit drinking and. Uh, so I started looking for external things that were wrong with my life. You know, so first thing I had to leave my husband because of course it was his fault. And then I just found myself drunk and alone. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, if it's not that, well, I'll have another baby. You know, if I have another baby, I'm going to join the fucking PTA and did that and, and actually fell harder and worse than I ever had um, I thought, well, maybe it's my brain's not being used. So I went to graduate school and... Ooh, and none, and then it was psychiatry. You know, it was the stuff that happened as a child. I got to work through my issues, and then I just found myself on seven psychotropic medications with some diagnoses. And um, I was a cocaine addict, and had dropped out of college and lost my job um, for mental illness issues. You know, air quotes. And then I found myself drinking on drugs and on psychotropic medications. And that was when my mother took my children. Thank God. Mm. Um, and so the, I spent the next two years in and out of rehabs and did a little time in an outpatient loony bin, um, frantically trying to get sober, you know, started going to the rooms. Um, and I couldn't. And I, uh, but you know, at one point, alcohol stops working for us. You know, I don't know mm. if you guys can relate to that, but yeah, we can relate to that. Yes, <laughs> we can. You're talking to your people. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I was drinking and I just couldn't get that relief that I described earlier. And no matter how much I drank, no matter what I put into my body, it's like I could get physically drunk, but I got no relief. And I only lasted about six months after that. And on March 5th, 2009, you know, I don't really know what was different about that day or that moment or that but um, I woke up that morning in, my, in a bed in my mom's house, having weaseled my way back into her house through lies and manipulation and back into my little job. Um, and I just knew, So I guess the difference between that day and the other days was that somewhere in, that I had run out of ideas of how to get sober, I had no more moves left. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really the moment that I became able to 
be taught and helped because my ideas, I knew somewhere deep in my bones that I was going to die an alcoholic. And the difference was that I knew there was nothing I could do about it. And it was that sort of deep surrender that I think ultimately allowed me to get some help in the rooms by a wonderful teacher (laughs) who saved my life, who I talk about as a, who's good news, Jack in the book, who really taught me about, you know, the role of self-centeredness and ego and reliance on a power outside of myself um, that I get to define on my own, which worked for me because with the Mormon upbringing, I was not interested in the sort of man in the sky judging me scenario. Right. So, um, and then my family was reunited about a year later and I had two more children and here I am. That was a long story. Did you want all that? I'm sorry. Yeah. Wanted all of it. (laughs) Well, there's a lot more to the story, which is what you, what you write about. But yes, that was, that was to get everybody up to speed on, on kind of who you are and where you're at right now. Um, I dabbled in the Mormon church as well. So when I, when I heard that, and when I was reading that in your book, that resonated with me as never being quite the right fit for that prof, you know, that kind of, uh, um, stereotype that exists, you know, and stereotypes exist sometimes for a reason uh, a little bit and, um, never feeling quite like you belong though. That's hard. And that is a feeling that starts very, started very young for me. So I, I identified with that when you, when you wrote about that, I was like, yep, you're not because our whole family wasn't there. You know, my dad didn't go and, um, it was hard. It was hard. You felt other from a very early age. And I I think that that's how I feel, or that's how I felt when I was drinking. I felt other, like, I don't, I don't think I'm like everybody else that drinks. And it's interesting how that can start from, um, you know, when you start looking back and kind of seeing where it all comes from, you start dissecting it, um, which sometimes feels really self-indulgent for me, right? Like I'm going back and you're just tearing everything apart. And you talked about that when you were, um, going to, you know, to the site, is it psychiatrist that you went to? I went to everything. Yeah. (laughs) Psychologist, psychiatrist. Yeah. (laughs) But when they're really kind of diving back into your childhood, and I think you shared, like, you didn't want to talk about your mom because you you felt like you were, like, not telling the truth. Well, right, because I always felt like it was never quite, um, it never quite embodied the entire experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, like, I felt like... uh, you know, my mother is, is, was always my best friend and my greatest supporter. And, um, while I think she and I had, you know, there were some problems between us and, and she had some of her own stuff going on, um, with codependency and, and, and marriages that, that definitely affected me, um, and were very, very hard and definitely messed with me a lot as a child when I would go talk to therapists, they would sort of draw these sweeping conclusions about our relationship. And I felt like they never saw the whole picture, you know, like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> like, like, yes, there's this bad stuff, but there's also this incredibly beautiful thing. And my mother is my whole life, you know, like that was kind of how that went. That's well, isn't I- it, isn't it just that life is a fucking paradox? Like everything yes. is a paradox. And I mean, that's probably what I got mostly from your book. Um, you know, starting, you know, going back to that story and just, you know, the whole story of, you know, we can love our parents more than our own lives themselves. And yet they can't save us. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, 
it's it's both and always <laughs> yes you had um you had the way you write janelle is really beautiful really beautiful because you say a lot yet you didn't you didn't have to um kind of attack anyone or you know smear anyone or say anything bad about anyone you know that's what i really thought you had a really beautiful way of writing the truth yeah, and that kind of that's a that's a such a um, an art form because uh, to be a memoir sometimes can be this confessional type way of writing, um, but to do it well, you know, that's the trick. <laughs> and Thank you. yeah, well, you and, th- and that may even speak to your to the work you've done in recovery. Yeah. You you really own your side of the street, yeah. and um and you and you stay there and telling your story even though it involves a whole lot of other people you stay on your side of the street. I think that speaks to, you know, all the probably very hard work you've done in recovery. Thank you. Yeah, that that was key for my survival. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't stay in the place of, you know, resentment and blaming others and, um, and sweeping myself, you know, um, figuring myself as a victim and, and, um, just because there's no power there, you know, right. And I spent so many years with this whole story of, you know, I, I'm living this life because of my childhood. It's not my fault. And if, if what happened to me happened to you, you'd be living this way too. And it took a realization that I was going to die from this. And it took this teacher, you know, explaining to me, I mean, showing me that that there was no power there and giving me a new way of looking at it, that yes, bad things happen. Yes, um, you know, you were harmed in certain ways. Nobody's arguing that. But at the same time, what, you know, you're the one who's dying now. <laughs> so, right. you know, I mean, I laugh, but of course it's not funny. But I mean, yeah, you know, there, there's no power in holding on to well, I'm I'm all jacked up because of what happened to me then. I mean, that may be true, but if we continue to hold that as as the reason or the justification while we're dying, who's the one that's dying, you know? Right. Like they say, and, you're, you know, drinking the poison expecting everybody else to die. And Right. And I remember at one point Jack said to me, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? And I just couldn't I mean, I just couldn't believe hmm. how powerful that sentence was for me, that question. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted, you know, that was what I always wanted was freedom. Right. Freedom, freedom to go through the world as a mother and a friend and a wife and a and a human being, you know, uh, without being, without alcohol as my master, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Boy, I but love he, me some good news, Jack. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, he's the best. He's <laughs> He's still the best. Um, but yes, I, you know, I was really, really careful when I wrote that memoir. And, you know, I think I was really careful to make sure that I only wrote from um, the place, as you said, my lane or my space. But where I bumped up against the world, I only allowed myself that place of intersection. Um, I, I made sure not to jump into people's minds or make assumptions about why they did what they did or who they are because of it. And I also, you know, have a, I also have a very genuine, um, (laughs) and understanding of the limitations of my own perspective (laughs) for obvious reasons, right? Like, 
I uh, was always interrogating my own perception and knowing that that's the way I saw it. But um, I, they would see it a different way. And they, right. and it's not my job to speak for them or to speak the truth with a capital T. But instead, hey, this is the truth as it happened to me. This is the way I saw it. And I, I tried to be a lot harder. I tried to write with a lot of compassion. Um, because I really wasn't interested in, in being a victim or a martyr or, um, or, or uh, yeah, you know, I didn't want people's sympathy. I didn't want people to think, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, uh, there was a line that you said that just stuck with me. And I, I, when I was reading it, you, you describe all these bullet points of your father. And, um, and then you said he, how does one miss an outline? Um, in reference to your relationship to your father. And that just hit me over the head. I started crying. I started writing down memories of my own father, the outline, and there were bullet points. And I thought it's interesting. It's um, just the way that you recalled things and the way that from your childhood and the way you wrote about it and how it all, you know, you threaded that together. It's just so beautiful. The music and how that played a part, you know, that was like a thread in there too. Um to keep grounding it and keep coming back to kind of where you came from. And um, I, I, I don't know. I'm just a big fan, Janelle. Very big fan. <laughs> it was good. Um, I did want to ask, um, so you were a young mom mm-hmm. and, or are a young mom, but younger. And when you had Ava, oh, I don't know if I should say her name. <laughs> um, you had postpartum depression. And I had that as well. And so I, I, I began sobbing through that part and just thinking like how lonely and isolating that was. I just found it really brave that you um, told someone, you know, you told the yeah. truth on yourself. And I just think like, I, I don't know, it, just reading your book and reading your words, it's like you, you, you've been telling the truth. It didn't seem like you were a liar. I mean, you would out yourself every once in a while and say you lied about that. But, but for the most part, it was like, it was almost like you, it felt to me you were daring, you were daring like somebody to say something or to take the next action or to, you know, do the next move by you telling the truth. About it's, the depression? Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like, well, if I do this, maybe someone will help me. If I tell the truth. You no, know, it absolutely could have been. And, um, in my head, I mean, I got, I got really sick, right? I mean, I got really twisted up inside and I, I thought if I told somebody they would take her away because I mean, this was 2001 and I mean, we, you know, the internet was obviously around, but it wasn't like a critic. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't like a huge part of my life at that point. Um, and I didn't have any friends having babies cause I was 22 and nobody was, talking about postpartum depression. So I honestly didn't know what I had. Mm-hmm. I thought I was just crazy. And I thought yeah. I was just evil. I thought there was something terribly wrong with me. And I thought if I told anyone, they would take my baby away. And I really, really believed that as as silly kind of as it is with my eyes now. <laughs> and um, but but nobody talked to me about depression. You know, I had the baby, nobody, none of them, you know, I, I had her with a midwife. Um, but I saw an OB as well. You know, nobody talked to me at any of the newborn exams, at any of the postpartum um, appointments or any of the pregnancy appointments. Nobody mentioned, hey, you might feel really jacked up. Come and see us, you know. So I didn't know what happened to me. And um, 
And then I got it in my head that if I told somebody, they were going to take her away from me. And as I wrote in the book, one day I pinched her, you know, and I, uh, I, I did it on purpose to hurt her. And that horrified me to the point where I, I was, I thought, I thought I was giving her up. I was ready to give her up because I, th I thought, well, I'm going to tell the doctor and then they're going to take her away from me. But I wanted, I thought she would be better off without me. I mean, that's how, hmm. uh, kind of crazy, you know, how, how and sick I got, yeah. um, I truly believed when I called that doctor that they were going to take my baby. And I didn't even tell Mac, my husband, because I knew he wouldn't understand. And he'd say, oh, don't don't say anything because we can't give the baby up. I mean, it was I was obviously really, really, really out of my mind um, at that point. And they told me I was bordering on postpartum psychosis. So I think I got real lucky yeah, in that yeah. in that um, in that decision and and in that sort of radical. And as you say, you know, I, I was probably I was probably begging for someone to help me on some deep level, but I truly believed she was going to take my baby away. And I went into the doctor's office fully expecting to walk out without a baby. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I told, you know, I, I just, at that point, I just thought, well, I'm, I'm obviously too crazy. Like I can't do this. I'm going to hurt her. And I, I don't want to hurt her. Yeah. You had enough, um, you had enough uh, wherewithal to kind of know that, like that little bit of you, that little part of you that was still there knew that that would be the best for her. Right. Yeah. And I was I, so surprised when the, when the nurse midwife just looked at me and said, oh, honey, you just have a little bit of postpartum depression. And I was like, what? That was so sweet. <laughs> I know. I'll never forget it. She said, we'll get you fixed right up. And I, I just wept. I mean, I just. Yeah. And I, it was like, wait, this is a thing that happens? Like, like there's help for this? <laughs> right. Yeah. It was pretty. I still, I still see that woman actually. She's mm -hmm. still... That reminded me um, of Sandra. Had you had an experience with a nurse recently that just kind of was like that, right? Just that could speak yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. Just the validation of you know, it's okay. Other people experience this. You're gonna be all right. And and just, I mean, just a a touch and a and a knowing just meant everything. It goes me. so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about your blog. Yeah. When did you yeah. start it? Yeah, I realized I didn't even mention that. Yeah. Um, I started it in January of 2011. So I... Um, yeah, what was the impetus? What was this? What was your process? Because I know you're a writer and you were going back to school to get your master's and you were very high functioning. Um, when you were drinking and doing drugs, like you, you yeah. were very high functioning in terms of Except outward. Two years. <laughs> there were two years where I was not. Um, right. 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 <laughs> not functioning. Yeah. I was non-functioning, um, quite literally, but yeah. So, so I got sober in 2009 and my family was reunited. Um, you know, we started sort of hanging out again, you know, in 2010 and then, yeah, for the year of 2009. And then in 2010, we bought a little house together because my husband was an iron worker and he'd been saving money and acting like an adult. Um, he's more sober than me, two years two years more sober than me. Um, and that's something he shares, so I'm not right. violating his privacy there. Um, and so I found myself sober and I got pregnant with my third child, Georgia, when I was about, mm, oh gosh, I guess, six or seven months sober, which I'm sure they say not to do, but that's what happened. And so 
I had Georgia in August 2010, and so here I am. I found myself reunited with my family. So I'm in this house with, uh, you know, two kids and a baby, and I'm going to graduate school, and I'm working, and my life has just become complete. So on the one hand, I'm so grateful to be here. Okay, I just, that's why I named my book that, because I right. say a lot, um, but now it's seems really weird. <laughs> I'm saying, the, yeah, okay. I probably should have thought that through more, but uh, <laughs> uh, so I find myself absolutely infinitely grateful to be alive, to be reunited with my family after a two year separation. Um, I'm like just sick with gratitude and at the same time, I'm so bored I could puke. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm exhausted and I'm running around with this mundane, you know, it, I sort of woke up in motherhood, right? Like right. I had been a mother for seven years or whatever, but I wasn't sober. I wasn't conscious really. And so I kind of woke up in this life where I was just thrown into domesticity and work and motherhood and I'm and so I'm looking around and I'm going and I start looking for people who are having the experience I'm having where it's like I would give my life for these children and also if I if they don't stop speaking to me I'm gonna mm -hmm. go I like run into oncoming traffic like I say that I, all the time <laughs> like I'm so like is this really it I mean I right I'm tired of cleaning my house. I'm tired of, of the mundane nature of motherhood and just this insipid routine. And I just felt like I was disappearing. And, um, and at the same time, so grateful that the sight of my children would bring tears to my eyes, you know? I mean, it wasn't lost on me that I should be in a gutter somewhere. And yet here I am with this beautiful family and... And so for those things to coexist for me, I, I started looking for that. Like, who is telling this story of just this ambiguity and this liminal space and this feeling of holding two absolutely opposing experiences in me at the same time toward motherhood and toward my identity as a mother? And I couldn't find it. I just couldn't find it. And so um, I had written, I started writing as a young girl, um, the bishop's wife handed me a journal after I was baptized and said, you know, you should write in this every day. And for whatever reason I did. And so I was a voracious, obsessive journal writer until I was 18. I wrote every single day. I, um, I read constantly. I wrote constantly and writing was a very, uh, every time I was angry, I would write every time I was sad, I would write. I, I just wrote pretty much constantly from the age of about nine till about 20. And then when my alcoholism kicked in, I sort of stopped writing. And so I found myself all of a sudden, um, 31 years old or whatever. And I started responding to the things I would read about motherhood with what I would write. So I'm sort of searching for someone writing my experience and I can't find it. And so I would read shit on baby center or whatever and I would start crafting a response in my head mm. of what I would have, how I would have written that article, like what I would have liked to have read. And 
And um, and it just wouldn't leave me alone. I was writing in my head in the shower and driving to work. And it was like this sort of this loud, like marching band in my head of words. And um, and eventually I kind of started to feel like I had to know if uh, there were other mothers in the world who felt like I did. Like I felt like I was going to burst. And so I decided to start a blog just to find out if other mothers felt like I did. And that was truly the extent of my goal. I didn't uh, have any expectation beyond that. I just wanted to know, is the rest of the world crazy or am I? Because <laughs> this is definitely lying. <laughs> <laughs> right. It can, you felt alone, right? Is it just me? people like am, am I nuts because if I'm the only one that's cool but I have to know and so I just so I started this blog and I had been reading a lot of mothering magazine which is like you know I don't know if you guys know about that magazine but mm -hmm. it's like everything is very soft colors and very beautiful and very Amish you know uh, toys and stuff and I was like living in this linoleum covered house you know in this terrible neighborhood and uh, so I called it renegade mothering because I, I didn't want anyone Oh, and then the tagline I said was, join me in the fight against helpful parenting advice. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because I just didn't want any expectation of me being somebody who was going to be uh, giving any sort of um, advice. or, And I didn't want anyone to have an expectation of consistency or... Um, and what I promised was that I was just going to write the truth of my experience of motherhood. I was just gonna say it. And I was gonna let the hypocrisy exist and the the contradictory feelings exist. And if I was sentimental one day and irate the next day, I was gonna let that be. And so I sat down at my cubicle one day when I was supposed to be working and I wrote a blog post. And um, I had about 40 readers and 20 of them were my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I just started writing a blog. And um, it became a very sacred thing to me. When did you first write about sobriety on your blog? It was actually about a year or two later. I think it was almost two years later. Mm -hmm. And that was just because um, at the time I, well, I was first of all writing about motherhood. So at first I didn't really see why I needed to, you know, I wasn't hiding right. anxiety, but right. I did sort of come out as an alcoholic for a couple of years. Uh, but I, it was twofold. I think a, you know, I was, I was newly sober and I was really into being, you know, sort of figuring out my new life and being in my new life. And it, it just was a sort of, well, I didn't want, um, I didn't want accolades for taking on responsibilities that were always mine. At that right. early point in my sobriety, it was very important for me to establish myself as just one among many and to, to not try to get on any sort of pedestal of in any way. And I really didn't want the accolades. I didn't want people to say, oh, look how great you are. Oh, my goodness. Look at what you survived. Look what you did. I really wanted to just be a mother like the rest of you guys. And, um, mm -hmm. and I knew that – and that – but over time – the reason that shifted was that I, I started to feel a little like I was hiding and I started to feel like I may be able to be of service to people by telling my story. Mm -hmm. And so it became less about me and more about, you know, Janelle, you might have a 
chance to help people with your story. So it became important, more important to me to talk, start talking about it. And that's why I did it. Well, I think yeah. that having a space to do that, right, a container to hold all of that um, is so important. So writing or finding any kind of creative outlet, that's kind of what we talk about on the show is, you know, you quit drinking. Yep. And now what? <laughs> You know, you have a, I had a lot of extra time on my hands when I quit drinking, you know, because there was so much involved in the rituals of what, like drinking and buying it and serving it and having occasions for it. And, um, it just became, that took up a lot of my creative energy. I had, right. I had to create situations where I could drink like I wanted to, and I'd get everybody else drunk too. You know, mm-hmm. I was overserved everyone in my path um i used to own a wine bar so oh, of, wow. co- of course that was my over let's overserve everyone if everybody drinks like i drink then i have no problem yes i have no that, problem right? yes. yeah and we start hanging out with people who uh either drink like we drink or worse right make us feel better <laughs> that. i'm sorry make us feel better right yeah 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 well, <laughs> forget as bad as that guy <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Absolutely. But it becomes a place like Sandra has her blog and I have a blog and it was a place to, and I, and I can recognize this from, from going back and reading what I used to write. It wasn't the whole truth. And so I still felt very much like a faker and I felt like I was, uh, yeah, for me, I felt like I was, um, trying, I mean, it's true what I wrote. But it was this version that I was could only write about because I was trying to glimpse like the good in my life because everything else was spinning out of control. So some people could read that and say like, well, you're not really representing the real you or the authentic you. It was as real as I could possibly be because I was holding on so tight. You know, I was just trying to get by. So when I look back, I read and they make me really sad because they're beautiful and they're little tiny things I did with my son. And I'm so glad I documented them but I remember that I wrote that at 2 30 in the morning when I woke up and had the sweats and had you know heart palpitations and I couldn't go back to sleep I would write about a part of a day that could help ground me again and and to keep going Um, I didn't know that at the time I only know that from looking back and kind of putting it all together that I was just I was using my blog and my writing as a way to kind of find a light in my life and, um, but that's while I was drinking, you know, now I think it's different how I write, but, um, oh, that was while you were drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I didn't catch that. Okay. Yeah. No. So it's only been three years. I've been sober for three years and, um, writing now is different. Right. And, but mine is, I have to say, mine is a little bit more confessional. I don't have the craft of a memoirist or someone who has a little bit more. Sandra is a beautiful writer and she does that really, really well, but I'm learning, you know, and that's, um, Absolutely. putting it out there. It's just like any other skill. Yeah. Um, he, didn't, he didn't do it. Read and practice. <laughs> right. That, not right. And then by reading others' work, like, I don't know, that's what, in early sobriety, it's like holding on to these books um, that um, brave people have shared their message. Uh, that's why we wanted to have you on, too, for all the ladies. Because a lot of people that listen to our show are sober, but they're also sober curious. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a memory that I had, I didn't share this with Sandra yet, but I found your blog before and, uh huh. And I read it and I stopped reading it and I wanted to tell you why. (laughs) Cause, um, it, it's the same reason I wouldn't read Glennon Doyle Melton's stuff. Um, 
it's because it, it just hit too close to home. Ah. And I wasn't ready. It's when I was still drinking. And so I wasn't ready to look at things and have someone be so honest. I was intrigued and like, shocked. And also like, fuck off. <laughs> kind of. Well, I just, I couldn't. That's what I would say. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't. Um, well, you know, just how judgy one can be. That's um, in early sobriety or, or I wasn't even sober yet. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm intrigued. I want to know more yet. I don't think it's available to me. And um, so, yeah. So when I was reading your blog again and look, I'm like, oh, yep. I remember this. Yep. This is another one of the gals that I was like, nope, I, you guys sound like you have your shit together, actually. <laughs> in, in terms of, in terms of days of, 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 of being sober and, and being able to do life sober, not perfect. I don't mean that. I just mean like, it just seemed unavailable to me at the time. And, um, oh, yeah. I fully get that. I couldn't have read me either. <laughs> but I wanted to, I wanted to tell that because when I hit on that, I was like, oh, hmm. Yeah. That's hilarious. I love that so much. <laughs> well, Janelle, we have a lot of, you know, we mentioned before that we have a lot of moms that listen to this um, podcast and we have, some, you know, secret Facebook groups that we're in that have a lot of moms that are newly sober and um, a, a, a lot of topics they raise are, you know, going to mommy play dates or mom, mommy groups and and the kids are playing and all the moms are talking about all the wine they're going to drink when they get home and um or you know that they should have brought the sippy cup full of wine or you know there's so much wine talk and wine marketing to young moms and um and I, I think what I find interesting about um your blog and all the women that follow you, you have a probably like a lot of what we would call normies oh, that yeah. that love you and and resonate with your story and and read your work. Did you did you find it hard to reconcile like your I don't know your sobriety or or, or did you ever feel like you needed to say yeah I can't go unload with a bottle of wine. Um, I don't know. Did you find those things conflicting for you ever, or do you do you get what I, where I'm going with this? Not really. Will you keep talking? Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. What do you mean by unload? Like where 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 was the dissonance, or what was the conflict? Yeah, right, right. Like like you know you t you 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 talk about, I mean, you, you were finding community with other moms, but yet those other moms you know, may have talked about, you know, using wine as a solution for their stress and anxiety. And that oh, yeah. wasn't Got part it. of your story. So how, how did that, how did you reconcile those things? Oh, yeah, I see. So you're saying because, right, so, so I mean, you know, the, the blog got, it, there. I wrote a post in like 2012 uh, called I Became a Mother and Died to Live. And I, and it sort of rocketed. I got went from like 400 Facebook fans to like 4,000 in a week or something. And and then the blog just sort of grew exponentially. And so it sort of quite quickly uh, exploded into sort of a larger, much larger thing than I ever expected. It happened, and it was before I sort of came out as an alcoholic, right? So I was first uh, blogging about just motherhood, this sort of irreverent take on motherhood. Um, I would write about politics too sometimes, but. Um, 
so yes, I, I wasn't established as a sort of sober blogger or uh, I, I was primarily writing about motherhood from my place. And so, yeah, to this day, there's a lot of talk about, is, is this what you're asking? A lot of talk about wine and jokes about right. like, get the whiskey. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also make jokes about whiskey and, right. uh, uh, and because, and so it, that's never really bothered me too much. Um, just because if alcohol works for other people, then more power to them. You know, okay. I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> I have a problem with the fact that I'm an alcoholic and so right. I can't drink safely, but if you want to drink more power to you, um, you know, if that's working out for you, I, 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 I don't really, um, I don't look at other people's drinking habits as my, as much of my business. Um, you know, I do find it amusing though, that everyone assumes that I drink. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. They assume that I'm an atheist and that I drink. It's like clockwork. It's so hilarious. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what, I've never said either of those things. And yet everyone assumes, I mean, not everyone, I'm exaggerating, but you know, a lot of people are assume I'm an atheist and that I, uh, I drink. And I, I it's guess it's the irreverence or something. It's the irreverence, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. So are definitely shocked when they find out that I'm, you know, I'm quite neither. Um, and that, and I guess they see my husband with his tattoos and so, I don't know, they, they just think we're like these partiers and that we're super edgy partier people. We're like, no, we're actually super nerdy. Um, uh, and that, that, yeah, so, so that's very interesting to me. So the assumptions that people make, um, and I sort of feel bad to let them down. Like, I actually, you know, I don't drink and I, yeah, and I'm not necessarily I'm not an atheist um I don't, I don't know what I would call myself in that regard but I that's probably not it um and so and as far as drinking in real life um I find that the only time drinking really bothers me I mean okay to address your question about the whole like wine mommy thing I find it fucking boring I'll just say that right now I right. think it's uh, the, the, the constant barrage of like, get your red wine, motherhood is hard, let's drink. I find it boring. And I don't mean to sound pretentious. I don't mean to sound like an asshole. I'm just being honest. I think it's a worn out trope. I think it's boring. Mm -hmm. I just said that five times. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so mostly I'm just bored by that. I'm bored by that narrative, that joke, that trope of like the overworked mommy who's got to turn to the wine. And because honestly... You know, it really doesn't, it didn't work for me. And I'm, and I'm not that interested in, in further exploring that comedy. I don't think it's that funny just because it's so overdone. Right. Uh, and quite I mean, dangerous for some people. And it's extremely obviously. dangerous for some people. Like, why is it not funny to be like, hey, mommy's overwhelmed. Let's get the Norco. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like to, exactly. to, to alcoholics is a death sentence. So, right. You know, so this this trope of oh you're overwhelmed, hit the bottle. If that works for you, cool, more power to you. But like it is somewhat, you know, it's potentially problematic for a decent population of people, and I, I'm not totally sure if that's an amazing coping mechanism. But also, like I get humor, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. Uh, I get that that shit's funny, and and people do what they do. And sure. If you, yeah. You come home and have two glasses of red wine every day, and that that's a nice reasonable solution for you and um you're not having problems with that cool but you know women have always mothers have always you know like back in the 60s or whatever i'm thinking about that rolling stone song about like mother's little helper mm -hmm. and and yeah. speed and and taking speed and drinking to make to make domesticity and to make erasure tolerable erasure of women. 
intolerable, I'm not interested in that shit at all. Right. You know, I mean, if we're really trying to blot out the reality of our existence, we should probably fucking do something. Right. It's the existence that's, yeah, that we should might, might need to look at. Right. But that's a very different thing than this joke of like, oh, holy hell, I'm potty training. Get me the wine immediately. Like that, I just think is funny. It's just a silly thing to say. And I think it's a reality. You know, I have tons of friends. Most of my friends drink. Um, most of my friends uh I mean, I, I don't wouldn't say they're super partiers, but I, I, most of the people I associate with drink alcohol. And uh, it's a very pleasant, fun thing in their lives. And I would never judge that. And they and it brings them a little sense of mellow. It brings them a little sense of fun. And and um, they don't have the disease that I have. Right. So, well, I, like I, your, I appreciate your perspective just because we have a lot of moms that, you know, struggle with the feeling of being judgy or or not and so i i I appreciate your perspective on that well i I mean i don't yeah well go ahead no i'm just i i (sighs) judgment is one of the things that i work on the hardest right it's my huge character defect default whatever you want to call it it's there and so i have to say that's something that i'm working on really hard right now because it's really um my husband still drinks right and i'm around people who drink and you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard work to just, you know, stay in your lane, stay in your hula hoop, whatever you want to call it. Like it's hard fucking work. Um, I wouldn't want it any other way, but it's still hard work. So yeah, seeing those memes, seeing those things pop up, all I can do now is block those ads from my feed. Um, not go out where I know everybody's going to get totally wasted. Give myself a curfew. Like I'm doing things that only I can control, but it's still out there. And I think as a young mom, when you're kind of in it, especially with little, little ones, and you're going to the park and everybody has champagne, or I remember going to the park and taking vodka. I remember doing that, bringing my shaker and thinking, and I remember people looking at me like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what's wrong with them? We would have been friends. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong? I found my people. Right? No, and I would look for the people that thought that that was okay. And if they gave me a look and I felt then I wouldn't do it there, I would do it somewhere else. Or, you know, I I hung out with people who didn't have kids was kind of what I did. I hung out with either people who had kids that were grown or that had no kids. And I would leave my kid at home with my husband. And so I, that motherhood component, you, every mom is different, how they're going to try to find their way to fit in. Um, I look back at things, though, Janelle, like just looking at my Instagram feed, I'm like, how many Manhattans can be photographed in a year? Well, let's count. Okay, let's do that. Like, why are you? So now when I do see those things, there is a judgment because I, I, from my own experience, I'm looking at someone else's feed going, oh, Jesus, they're photographing alcohol so much. Does she have a problem? Does she need help? Can I be a friend? Can I, you know, but again, back in my lane, that's her deal. She'll reach out. I'm open about being um, sober. So hopefully, and that's why we do this podcast as kind of an extension of the 12th step for me, um, is that a way to be of service as well and not have to preach it, you know, just if somebody wants to tune in, they're at that place. And so that's like, we love to talk about this stuff too, because alcohol is the solution for a really long time until it isn't. Until it isn't. Backfires on us, the bastard. <laughs> you, you said you, um, I'm going to quote you, Janelle. You said, alcohol was my most reliable friend, offering me with every warm, hot kiss, that which the rest of the world promised, but never delivered, peace and meaning. Yeah. 
And I think for a long time it does that mm-hmm. until it mm-hmm. doesn't. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. I like how you explain that. Go ahead. No, I just love how you wrote that again. I'm just, I'm just loving all your words. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So much. Yeah. It, it's, it is tough. And I, you know, I, I agree with you about the, you know, the, the attraction rather than promotion, right? That like, if we are just here and we're mm-hmm. available and, you know, I, I hope that people will come to me and they do, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people tell me, people message me. I mean, I can't do much on the internet, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, I hope that people will see, um, that I'm, you know, in my life that I'm available if they ever want help or to talk to and people have reached out and it's, and it's wonderful. I also get a lot of families of alcoholics mm. more than the alcoholic themselves. Right. <laughs> like, somebody's mother or father or brother or sister or friend yeah you know will contact me because you're because you're um you're it's you're the hope you're the hope that that they that maybe they can um get it you know not that you're the answer but just that you're that little glimmer you're shining so that they can say oh maybe it's not too late maybe my daughter or son can find a way exactly yeah yeah so i found that sometimes i can I'm more of I'm more of service to the family than the, than the alcoholic at some points. Well, do you have any advice for you know moms who are struggling or parents out there who are struggling? You uh, know, with, with with motherhood, with if they're drinking, just kind of the whole or doing drugs. Like, is there something that you can, you know, advice of of how you how you pulled yourself out of it? Oh gosh. Um, well, <laughs> don't mean to put you on the spot. We don't. We can go circle back to well, that. <laughs> um, well, that it's just sort of a big question because the way I, 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 I didn't really pull myself out of it, to be honest. Um, I, I drank and used drugs until I uh, had no choice but to either get sober or die. Um, right. And so I can't recommend my way. <laughs> right. Um, Correct. <laughs> a very 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 big ego I was very judgmental I was very self-centered um and I was unteachable for a long long time I thought I had all the answers I thought um people just didn't understand me you know good news Jack used to tell me we're all in various stages of my case is different yeah right <laughs> yeah which is one of the, the greatest things anyone's ever said to me and and I was very special you know like that chapter I wrote about who's the sickest in the room you know I was mm-hmm. always the sickest in the room I was always one-upping people with my pain and my agony and my and so that is an impenetrable wall um I, because as soon as anyone came at me with suggestions or advice or their experience, I would say, but I'm different from you. You don't understand. And therefore I could dismiss whatever they were saying because they didn't understand me. Um, and I was not able to be helped. And that had to get beaten out of me through alcoholism and, um, and addiction. And I had to go to this really deep, spiritual and uh, psychological bottom to to even be open or willing to hear what other people were saying and so I don't really know how um, people recover from alcoholism without going there I think I know I've seen it but I don't want to speak outside of my realm of experience you know yeah mm-hmm. well, well um, I think oh go ahead no I was just saying Sandra and I often say like it 
that your bottom can be a feeling too. It doesn't have to be a a physical bottom. Mine was a feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, yeah. Right. Because our consequences can all look different. Yes. Differently. Yeah. yeah. It's not about the consequences, it's about the feelings. No, it's never about that. No. And when we're sitting in meetings, it's interesting to me because when people talk about, you know, look for the, look for the similarities, it's not look for the similarities of, ex- of experience in terms of consequences from our drinking. It's look for similarities of how you felt, how you, you know, felt. what exactly. did alcohol do for you? How did you, you know, what thought preceded the first drink? You know, how did that unfold for you? Because that is where I think we're all the same. And that, and the, the, uh, I think the surrender often looks the same for a lot of us. Yeah. Cause my life had actually was better than it had been in many years <laughs> in quite a long time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. physically, you know, on the externally, I was better off than I had been say six months or a year before. Do you feel, um, Mac, your husband, I mean, I, I, when you wrote about him kind of being this quiet soul mm-hmm. and, um, and that he didn't react to you sometimes how you wanted him to react. Right. Or he, he was a quieter guy. He didn't, he didn't have to talk like you did. Right. I'm a talker yeah. too. So, <laughs> um, but he sounds like he, you know, he, he, when he went in to get treatment and he's two years sober, do you find that, um, having that in common with him or having a person that doesn't drink, you know, in your life helps support you in a way that maybe it might be harder if you were married to a normie. Yeah. I mean, I know you can't know that, but I mean, just I, I'm imagining it's much more support that the you're getting. 100% yes. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, right. I, I, when you said that, that your husband's still drinks, um, yeah. uh, mad respect. Um, and the reason I think it's very helpful is that, um, it isn't so much about the temptation, I think, but just that it's sort of an entire environment created without alcohol, right? Right. So, so he and I, we we love to go hear music. We love to dance. You know, music is still, just like in the book, music is still an incredibly central part of our lives. And he and I have been adamant that we go do things together still, even with a boatload of children. Um, <laughs> we go play, we go hear music, and we, we insist upon spending time together as friends and married people who, you know, somehow still like each other, uh, usually. Mm-hmm. Like. Um, and so we go to hear bars. Yeah, we go hear music in bars. You know, we, we you know, sometimes our favorite bands will be at a bar. We'll go hear them. Um, and, and there's a lot of drinking. And so it's sort of he and I, right? It's sort of he and I in this little sober bubble. Yeah. Uh, right. And when we go to Christmas parties and everyone's drinking – he and I are in our little sober bubble, you know, and it's sort of, it's yeah. the culture now of our family, of our little unit, and, you know, our kids know, and there's never alcohol in the house, um, and so, yes, that is extremely helpful, more, I think, in navigating the world, like, because those are the only times when I feel any temptation, right? I get these mm-hmm. little flashes of, like, you know, we go to Sonoma County and, and of course I remember the beautiful wine tasting afternoons of having some gorgeous lunch in Napa outside in the vineyard, sipping white wine. Right. I don't, if it was only like that, (laughs) of course, of course, course. I don't remember the like vomiting on myself. Right. You know, and if we go to these places, I'll have this little flash of like, Oh, remember when, you know, and it's immediately knocked out of me because I can say to Mac, Oh gosh, remember that time we came or and and we did whatever and he'll say, Oh my gosh, yeah. 
or we'll see other people drinking and we'll sort of comment on like, gosh, we like, this would be the point where we went to the bar like right. they're home. And this would be the point when we were just getting started. You were, right. So, <laughs> so that's very helpful to sort of have this constant kind of back and forth stream of conversation of like having someone to share with you just kind of what happens when you drink and just reminding us that, that we don't drink like normal people and that, oh, this would be the point when we went and got the baggie, <laughs> you know? Mm, right. Yeah, this would be the point where we did blah, blah, blah. And um, and cracking jokes about it, you know? Like, I, don't, I remember the other day, I don't know, for some reason I, somebody, I don't remember, one of us was saying something about being upset or something. And, and so one of us made a joke, like, well, you could go have a few cocktails. I said to Mac, well, you could go have a few cocktails. And he said, no, thanks, I have to be somewhere at Christmas. Right. Was, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You already know how that's going to go. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, actually, I got, I got somewhere to be at Christmas. You know, <laughs> My, I start, right. I know. Yeah. I see it, and too. So, like, I start removing articles of clothing. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just a yeah. <laughs> We already know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you got to run a really solid program to, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. I mean, I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for anyone in sobriety, but I've always thought it would be very difficult for that reason. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, so when you were writing this and obviously he's, well, you're writing about your whole family. So your mom's, you know, everybody's in there, but, um, was he, was he okay with what, how you wrote about, obviously he probably was okay with how you wrote about him, but did he, did you run it by him or did he read it or did he just be like, yep, you're going to be truthful and you got it. how, How did that work? Um, so it's funny. So he did not read it while I was writing it, and I didn't run things by him. Um, occasional, well, I asked if he was okay with me talking about him being an alcoholic. Uh, right. He said yes. Um, and I asked, I don't think I, hmm, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking here okay. for a second. Uh, it was, you know, it was kind of a while ago. <laughs> I was working on the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wrote, you know, I wrote the book by myself, obviously, uh, and completely sort of isolated. And I wrote it the first couple drafts, um, pretending that nobody was ever going to read it, even though I had a contract with a publisher, which is sort of a mind thing I had to do to be able to get the truth out. I forgot. I didn't allow myself to think about the audience. I didn't think about any of the consequences. I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just sort of wrote Hmm. the entirety of the story, but from the perspective of what I was mentioning before of making sure I stayed in my space and making sure I didn't, um, you know, that I always gave people the benefit of the doubt and tried to, tried to write them as human beings, not in, um, instead of in these single strokes that benefited me. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like rather than try to frame somebody as well, they're the bad one or they're the selfish one or they're the, this one. They're the reason I drank. Yes. Yeah. I really wanted to write humans with dynamic, beautiful personalities um, alongside whatever fault they have, just like me. Um, And uh, so I wrote the entire book. um, And then when it was done, right before actually, um, I think it was due to my publisher in a week or something, and I had the whole thing written. And I um, sat down and actually, it's kind of an emotional thing to talk about for some reason. Um, 
I read the entire thing to Mac. Hmm. Front to back. Just he and I. Um, I like yeah, it was that. a really beautiful experience because, you know, I'd been working on this book for a year and a half. Um, and I went away on weekends and he was, he, he, you know, there were, he, he was alone with the kids for yeah to hold down the fort. Yeah. yeah, A lot. And he'd work five days a week as an iron worker, get up at four in the morning, drive two hours, do iron work all day, come home. And then I'd leave on Friday afternoons and I'd come back on Sunday. And so he was working seven days a week. Um, and then I read him the book front to back in a two day period. We just read all day and then we read all day the next day and we cried and we laughed. And, um, um, it was a beautiful experience. And when we were done, he said, you know, I've been with you for 17 years, but I feel like I understand you for the first time. Mm, wow. <laughs> yeah. Cause he had, you know, there were things in there that I had never, he knew the stories, but he didn't know, sort of how it framed me and he didn't know a lot of I think he he said that or I, I see you clearly for the first time or something like that it was a very beautiful experience and I, you know and then I asked him is there anything in there that bothers you and he said no but um hmm. so for whatever reason I'm married to somebody who isn't super concerned about that stuff you know <laughs> me on the blog too you know I try to yeah but I also don't talk shit about people you know what I mean like right. I'm so I'm also trying really hard, as I mentioned before, to um, convey the multiple dimensions of people and to write them as full human beings and to only write them as I saw them, but not make assumptions about them. You know, I don't want to repeat myself, but and I also, you know, I think it's really important when we write memoir, particularly to not be writing from when we're still in the resentment, right? Yeah. Like. Because it's, you know, it's skewed. It's skewed. Yeah, exactly. If I was writing that book from a place, you know, if I'd written it 10 years ago, it would have been a very different book. Um, if I was writing when I was still resentful or still blaming or still um, in that place of victimhood, I, I, it would have been a very different book. When did you um, know that it was time or give yourself permission to take the time the weekends away and all that I mean did you have like a contract so you had a deadline or was it before that well I had been um, I had been teaching I was teaching junior college I was teaching English and I had four kids and as I said my husband works in far, far away so um, that was getting real rough to try to do the writing and the teaching and the blog and the kids <laughs> so yeah uh, so I, um, I kind of took a big step and I quit teaching and I rented this little office, um, in town and I decided I was going to try out writing. And so I was teaching online writing workshops, which I still teach. And, um, and I was doing freelance writing and, and then I was contacted by this agent who read my blog and I had a really terrible first draft that I had written in a month, a year before. And so I turned it into a, we turned it into a book proposal and it sold. It was all really dreamy and very, um, surreal and nothing I ever expected. Um, and, and so then I found myself with this book contract, <laughs> which was stunning and wonderful, but, uh, still had the four kids, still had the husband working away. Um, and so I would work, my work hours in my little office were from, nine about nine till about 2 30 when I had to go pick up my kids so 
what is that, five and a half, six hours, five and a half hours, uh, four days a week. And then on Fridays, I have my toddler with me. So I had this blog, and I thought, okay, well, I'll write my book then. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> because, right. Uh, right, four kids, there's always somebody who fucking needs something. Right. <laughs> it's true. You think you have four, four days a week, five hours a day, or whatever, 20, 24 hours. But actually, there's always somebody with a cold or an appointment or a parent-teacher conference or it's fucking early release. So my <laughs> 25-hour work weeks or whatever rapidly often became 10-hour work weeks or zero-hour work weeks. Yes. And uh, this put the fear of God in me. And it just wasn't getting written. The book just was not getting written. And so I had a choice, right? I could either default on the contract or I should could figure something else out. And... Um, so I just said, fuck it. And I started going away and locking myself in these little motel rooms Friday afternoon to Sunday. And I would write from like 4 p.m. on Friday until midnight. And then I would get up at 7 and I would write 10 or 11 hours that day. And then I'd get up on Sunday and write until checkout. And then as the book got closer, I would go away for three and four days. I think one time I went away for five days. And I wrote the entire book that way. And it was the only way it was going to work because... Even I discovered that my writing process, even if I had those five hours in the office, it's not enough time. Right. <laughs> I needed like big blocks of privacy, of silence and isolation and uh, to really get into my head and into the book. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of writing is sort of sitting there dumbly staring at the screen going, what the fuck am I doing now? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes I needed to be able to go sit and stare at the screen for an hour or two hours. Right. And think and, and unpack. I, yeah. And unpack those thoughts. And yeah. Yeah. You, you just get stuck, you know, you just get stuck and you just got to delve into it and you're just rewriting and reworking. So yeah. So I wrote my whole book that way and it was a, it felt like a sort of radical act. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm sure. Yeah. It yeah. felt like very, sort of radical commitment to my life as a writer and to myself. And it was not easy always. I mean, I know that it sounds super dreamy to like get in the car and leave and go to a motel room in silence for a couple of days. But by the 10th time, you know, I, I was missing my kids. I was feeling the guilt. I missed events, you know, I missed kids events. I missed, uh, um, you know, I, I missed stuff. It was a sacrifice. But what I reminded myself was, A, I really believe in this book and that it needed to be written. And also, I wanted my kids to see their mother as a whole person. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Uh, yeah. I really wanted my children to see their mother pursuing something that meant a lot to her and um, being a full person on her own. I think that's always something that's very important to me to instill in my children that they don't define me and they're not responsible for my happiness or my identity. I've got that on my own. And, um, this was part of that. Right. Let's be real. It allowed me to be with them during the week. Right. (laughs) So like, yeah, I was gone on the weekends, but also I was with them all week, which is pretty fucking cool. You know, I could pick them up from school, you know, being a writer affords me a lot of flexibility that a lot of mothers don't have and that I didn't have for a long, long time. So, yeah. Can I ask you just like a technical question? Sure. So we've interviewed um, Ann Dowsett Johnston on the program. 
and I took a workshop with her and, and she did a lot of index cards and kind of excavating memories and putting it on the wall and like, just keep jotting down the memories as they come to you, like throughout the day. So, um, that was a tool. And then we interviewed Sam Lamott, um, and Lamott's son and his little mantra was like, just fucking finish it. Like whatever you start, just finish it creatively. Like just get it done. Don't leave things half undone, you know, an essay or an art project or whatever, just finish it. So I keep like gathering all these tools, but I'm curious, like, did you have a writing program or did, were you an index card person or, or, or a handwritten person first? And then you put it again, we have a lot of writers and creatives that listen. So I'm just curious when you went to the motel room, was it, was it, um, all on the computer? Yeah. I just okay. used word. Just word. Okay. I, it was a very good process. I'm guessing. Um, I, I, somebody told me to download script, Scrivener, Scrivener, Scrivener. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I, and I tried and it was just confused me. So I had a terrible process, really. I would write, um, in word. And then every time I do a major rewrite of a chapter or a section, I would print it out and I had, so I had to print it out and read it, um, like, like on a bed or somewhere where I don't usually write or outside with a pen. Mm -hmm. I had to hold it in my hand and read it to revise it. So I would do a lot of my revision by hand and then I would just save it as a new file. So I, I, <laughs> and I would go like chapter one, one, and then I go chapter one, version two, mm-hmm. chapter one, version 10 a, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was that shit. It, I mean, nobody could decipher what went on. In, but you, like, but me. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And then it would be like chapter one, version 10 C revised. I mean, I can't even like it's just it's working of an. Okay, that's what I wanted to know because <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to know. Yeah, it was it was just a total shit show. But here's the thing with that: I really think that as writers, we have to discover what our process is. We yeah. just have to we have to let go of all the shit we've been told. It's by, true, and we just yeah. got or how it. you're supposed to do it. Yeah, yeah all that because. You know, I didn't know that I was a writer who needed huge blocks of privacy and silence and uninterrupted time to write. I did not know that. I did not because I can write a blog post sitting in my room with, you know, all hell breaking loose in the living room. Um, But that is a very different type of writing than a book, you know, I mean, and so I didn't know that I was the type of person who needed I needed, you know, big blocks of time to think and write and think and write and think and write and um, really get sort of tormented by this stuff. I couldn't just snap in and out of it day to day. I needed some real, um, some big space. And, and I just accepted that it wasn't ideal. It wasn't, I didn't expect it, but I accepted that. Okay. Well, I guess that's the kind of writer I am. And, um, and so I think if we get hung up on what we should be doing, Mm -hmm. Oh, I should be this, or I should be that. And I, or I should be feeling something, you know, that's a big one. Oh, well, if I were a real writer, I wouldn't be so tongue tied. Or if I were a real writer, I'd be enjoying this more. Mm-hmm. Oh, this would be flowing easier. You know, we got to let go of all that shit and just accept what writing looks like for us and keep going. Because I think we quit, you know, before we get to the point where we learn what kind of writer we are and learn to trust that process of, oh, this is what writing looks like for me. Right? Yeah. Not anybody else, for me. 
Well, that's what I'm most interested in is people's processes, um, because I'm so interested in my own to try to figure it out. So I like that. I'm not super tech savvy. So, you know, Word or a Google Doc would be how I would do it, too. But I did try the index card formula from Ann Dowsett Johnson, and it worked for a little while. But then I can't remember where I put the index cards, and then then the memory's gone. I know there's a way I need, and and I don't put things in my phone, like notes. I don't do it that way. I want a piece of paper. I have Anyhow, so I'm just curious. So thank you. I was just curious like when you lock yourself in that motel room I'm just very curious like how that looked well I would always um I had a very ritualistic style to it as well which is sort of odd but you know writing's kind of ritualistic in that way I would I would always eat Thai food I would always <laughs> eat a bunch of Thai food I don't know what that was about um probably just that I did love Thai food and then I did it once or twice and then it became a little ritual and I would get a bunch of really strong chocolate bars like like really high cacao percentage mm-hmm. bars um, and I liked ginger beer too. I would get like spicy ginger and yeah. And then I would just, uh, sit there and I would just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was, a it was rather unpleasant a lot of the time. It was kind of torturous to be honest. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean like I'm trying to sound like some sort of tortured artist type. I just, I'm just being honest. It was very, very difficult and it didn't come easily a lot of the time. Um, I forced myself to write Hmm. and then you'd have, I would have moments of, and I think we all have these, but force myself to write and then have these glorious moments where the words just flowed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so some chapters flowed and other chapters was like pulling teeth. It was just fucking awful. And I just wanted to give up and I'd write it and rewrite it and write it and rewrite it and it just wouldn't work and it wouldn't work. And uh, we just have to keep going and keep carving. And that's, so that's what I did. I didn't. I didn't have a lot of um, system. You know. I yeah. Other than yeah, keep going. Than <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> yeah. Keep the words coming and trust that um, that the way will materialize. You know, and that 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 was the real big lesson I had to learn is that is that in writing a big project like this, you get lost. And you don't know where you're going. And then you find your way again. It's like you're lost at sea. I think Huno Diaz talks about being feeling lost at sea when he's writing a first draft. And I'm not sure if he extended this metaphor or I did. But um, but I really felt that of like, you're lost at sea. You just, you don't know where to go next. You don't know what to write next. And then all of a sudden, it's like you bump into an island. You go, oh, right, obviously, this is where I'm going. And then you go, oh, sweet, I know where I am now. And then, boom, you're lost again. And, and over time, I started to trust that I was going to get found again, that the, the, the path was going to materialize at some point. And I would cut all the crap that didn't belong there, right? So all that lost stuff, I would cut it. And I would keep, you know, once I found my way again, you just cut what doesn't belong. And for me, that getting at peace and starting to trust while I did not enjoy it, I will be honest, but getting to accept that that lost part is actually part of writing, that mm-hmm. that is the process. It doesn't mean I'm a bad writer. It doesn't mean I'm not a real writer. It doesn't mean I'm an imposter. That's actually the process for a lot of us. Some of us are planners. We start a project with everything lined out, every outline, every character. With outline, yeah. Right. Yeah, and others are people who um, sort of, I think George Saunders talks about the gardener variety of writers where you throw seeds in the ground and you see what pops up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Just very inspiring. Love it. 
good. It's very, um, yeah. And it seems, um, I think hearing people who have, have, who have done it, right. That's why we have these interviews. That's why we talk to people and say like, um, sometimes people think sobriety is just this kind of boring existence and, um, Right? It's not. I mean, but you don't know that until you can do it. But at first, it seems like this really boring existence. And to be able to kind of refill yourself back up with things that you really love doing or that has always been a part of you. I mean, you've always been a writer and, yep. um, you know, giving yourself permission to do that on the weekends and to have the support of your husband and your children and your family. Like that's um, like you said, it wasn't like you were going on vacation. It was work. No, you were going to work. It was work, um, and and because I knew that that was the only time I was going to get that week, I took it seriously. And I also, you know, I was spending money. I mean, uh, we're not rolling in money, and so it was a quite a financial commitment. Um, and so I wasn't going to waste my family's money, and I wasn't going to waste my family's time. And I knew all these sacrifices people were making. So while I did definitely, you know, lie on a bed and stare into the void every now and then. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I would get my ass up and get back to writing because I would say, oh, you know, this is it, Janelle. This is all the time you have. And the book contract didn't, you know, that helped a lot. Right. <laughs> called no choice. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Janelle, I have to say that I'm, so I'm 48 and I have two kids. They're 14 and nine. I wish I would have found your blog a long time ago. I, I don't know why it never got on my radar I think I I think I would like you I tried to read a couple of mom blogs and none of them resonated ever with me and then I just gave up you know I think the other thing I would 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 be the opposite you know you were talking about who's the sickest in the room I also didn't resonate with like who's the worst mom in the room that never resonated with me either it's like okay we all have our moments but um I find now that I'm you know, more transparent about sobriety and way more, still way more reserved about being a parent, actually. Um, I laughed when you talked about your daughter calling um, her vagina her wiener shooter. Uh, My daughter has always called it her front butt. And like, I hardly ever tell anybody that. It's so fucking funny. And my husband and I laugh like, please don't, we're never going to correct her, are we? so goddamn funny but it's like one of those things where it's just like oh I can't tell anybody that right I mean I'm a horrible mother we um, we're horrible parents because we let our daughter call her vagina her front butt oh yeah so anyway it's out now around motherhood I mean it's it's just unreal I mean that is just a whole other podcast I mean and this is one of the reasons I started writing and you know it was interesting you know you talked about sobriety and and sort of the doors it opens. I mean, I think we can never, it's, you can't anticipate what's going to happen because what, what happened to me was I had, you know, and that's one of the questions I get the most from readers is how do you have the courage to say the things that we're all thinking, but, but won't say out loud. And it took me a second to think about that because um, I wasn't sure. I mean, I mean, first of all, I've always had, you know, a questionable filter. I was kind of always, saying the thing that, you know, I probably shouldn't have said, but, but in, in hindsight and in looking back, it's like, why was I able to say these things about motherhood that other people, that, that people maybe didn't, wouldn't say out loud. And I realized it was because I had nothing to lose yeah. when I got sober. I mean, I, 
the cat was out of the bag about my capacity to be a good mother, air quotes, right? Like I, I had already faced the limitations of me and, and I had already gone down to the bottom, you know? Um, and so what was the internet going to say to me? Like, you're a bad mother. It's like, Oh really? I had no fucking clue. Thank you. <laughs> like I, I had nothing. I had nothing to uphold. Right. And, and that is, I mean, and who could have ever imagined that? Right. And so I was sort of free to write these things because from my perspective, the standard shit that mothers do that's like shameful and bad. I mean, hello, I lost my children to alcoholism for two years. Like this was just like chump change, right? right. I mean, I minimize things, but it's like, from my perspective, I was just so fucking happy to be with my kids. And frankly, so kind of impressed with myself that I was like, <laughs> you know, fuck yeah, I scream sometimes. Who doesn't? Yeah. At least I'm here and I'm not doing cocaine in the bathroom. You know, I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, flippant about it, but honestly. Oh, and, yeah. And that was a beautiful thing, right? That like, I didn't, I felt really set free because it was the internet wasn't going to tell me anything I didn't know. Yeah. Um, it weren't, I had to stay sober. I had to face all that stuff in myself. I had to face all that shame. I had to face all that guilt. I had to make amends and make living amends. And so I wasn't afraid of the internet illuminating something in me that I hadn't seen already. And what an incredible unexpected gift, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, I never would have articulated that or expected that. It's just something that came. Yeah. But yes, talking about, I mean, I have the wrath that I've received. I mean, I get death threats. I mean, the things people say to Do me. Do you? Oh, my God. I bet. Uh, when I talk about, I mean, you know, my kids should be removed by CPS. I mean, it's just unreal. Yeah. Not because of the alcoholism. Because of the things Not I said. Even, right. Not even because of the worst. <laughs> Well, you've created a beautiful community. It seems like they love you. Yeah. Your people love you. Yeah, and do. yeah, we feel lucky to have um, found you. One of our listeners was the um, turned us on to you. Oh, said, really? you've, oh, got, yeah. you've got to chat with her. You've got to ask her to be on your show. You And so, yeah. Thank her for me. I, I've been absolutely blown away by the community that has formed over there on Renegade Mothering and the just it's the support I've received with this book and through this I just I it takes my breath away I don't even know I don't mm. even know how to describe it mm. well I know that our listeners if they don't already know know you and your work they're gonna love you thank you yep. so much well let's see so we're we we could probably talk to you for another hour as this just keeps happening with every guest Sandra we just want to keep <laughs> talking and talking we have to cut ourselves off um but so we, at the end of our podcast, we share three tools that help us kind of stay unruffled, which um, the word means calm and not agitated. So we were wondering if you had three tools that you might share with our listeners um, that maybe are your go-to things that help you out. Would you be willing to share those? Sure. Um, well, I think the first one I would have to say is that... Um, I have to be really honest with myself about when I'm ruffled. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really easy to get 
especially after you've been sober for a few years, to get caught up in um, the beats of life and motherhood, if you're a mother, and start to not look inward anymore. Um, and not, and maybe not even be honest with yourself about your own suffering or your own the building anger or the building frustration. And I think that's very dangerous ground for alcoholics because, um, you know, the way we've treated that un internal unrest is to seek alcohol. And so um, one of the tools that I use often is to write in my journal and to try to be ruthlessly honest with myself about how I'm doing. Um, you know, so it's one thing to be honest with others, you know, not lying or et cetera, but the hardest person for me to be honest with is myself, you know, to really say the truth of, of what's going on with me internally. And um, so I think that that commitment to sort of self-exploration, whether it's through meditation and prayer or um, journaling is one tool that probably is one of the most critical. Um, and I would say working with other alcoholics, mm -hmm. getting out of myself, being of service to others, I would not be sober were it not for that. Um, and for me also, it's um, staying part of the world, you know, um, in terms of like really trying to be awake and alive when I go to the beach or go hear music with my family or dance or you know, just um, making a conscious effort to look at this, to look at the, our life, you know, and to look at what's around us and say, well, you know, fuck, this is, this is really pretty cool, you know, to stay in a place of gratitude, but not that faux gratitude, right? Not that like bullshit gratitude, but like the mm -hmm. really, really, you know, like, holy shit, I'm sitting here, you know, with these beautiful family and we're a family, you know, or we're, like in Santa Cruz, we're sitting on the sand, we're under a pine tree, you know, whatever it is. And I don't mean to sound all like woo woo, but staying in a place of awareness and gratefulness of like life. And a lot of that for me has to do with going out and being in the world, right? Like enjoying nature, being part of this life that we've been given. Yeah. You know, so I think it's really easy. I think alcoholics, we really like to get into our heads. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We really like to get in there, although it's a horribly dangerous neighborhood. We love to hang out there. And, <laughs> you know, we're like, you know, no, no, I, I would just like to go hang out in my thoughts for a while and ignore everything else, even though it's mm -hmm. miserable here, at least it's mine. Um, right. And so for me, all of these actions are getting me out of myself, right? Like, yeah. hey, let's go on a hike. Let's go on a bike ride. Let's go be alive, people. <laughs> and like, mm -hmm. not me. I had and that's also you know working with other alcoholics being of service to others gets me out of my head and also reminds me where I came from reminds yeah. me where I can return um and I don't know if those are too vague but no, no perfect not at all well, yeah. a bullet person so <laughs> no but you just you're living an examined life you know when you're examining these things and thinking about like so you could stay in your head but if you could go out into the world and get to live it right you're not just thinking about it you're gonna go do right. it yeah and sometimes it's really hard I mean I suffer from you know I get I've been, I've been depressed quite a few times in sobriety my my grandmother was murdered um in 20 
16. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I've clung for dear life at times to, um, to my sobriety. And it was often putting some trust in, you know, the world around me, right? Like the, the, the vibrant, beautiful life that has built up, built up around me and remembering how grateful I am for that and not staying in my head that, that helped me survive those tough times, you know, that will inevitably come. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being so open and sharing um, with us today. We really yes, appreciate it. We want to, we want to promote you for writing this book. Yeah. It's so good. It's gonna, I mean, I know you didn't write it to help people, but <laughs> oh no, I did. it will do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, she did. Well, you wrote it probably because you had to write it, but yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. the byproduct. Oh, yes. Well, I wrote, I think that if, um, I think our art should, that's sort of one of the driving forces of my work is to try to be of service to people, try to contribute something. So in that sense, I was trying to help in terms of right. contributing something to the world that I thought was of value, you know, um, and some meaning for the world. But yeah, I, w- I definitely wasn't moralizing. <laughs> well, how definitely. can people, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. I just want to say, how could people find your book? Can you um, tell them? Well, I'm just happy to be here, and it comes out May 1st, 2018. So just it'll come out tomorrow, actually. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. tomorrow. And um, it's on Amazon. It's on. You can find it on um, IndieBound if you're into indie stores or local bookstores, and uh, Barnes and Noble. It's everywhere. And I'm going on a little tour, which is kind of fun. Very well, fun. That's exciting. Ooh. Where will we be posting tour information? So, um, all of that stuff will be on my Renegade Mothering Facebook page, okay. um, and I'll put and I'll put a and a link on the blog. Um, but yeah, the Renegade Mothering Facebook page is probably a good place to start because all the events okay. are there. Okay. But yeah, it's mostly West Coast plus Chicago. I'm trying to right. get to Austin now, Sandra. So. Please come to Austin. I, I bet them. you. I bet you have lots of Renegade mothers in Austin. Oh, I love Austin so much. And your website is renegademothering.com. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, right. and your Facebook page is at renegade or re, reneg mothering, right? R E N E G mothering. Renegade in the address. They said it was an inappropriate word. Isn't that right? <laughs> weird? I know. Super weird. I tried okay. it like so There's got to be some glitch here. Like, how the hell is renegade an unfortunate, like, a, like an inappropriate Facebook word? But they fully let me, so I had to shorten it to renege. That's funny. Yeah. Facebook. Um, but that, but the communities that are forming on Facebook, we have a secret Facebook page for this group because um, of a lot of the things that we share. People don't want that out on Facebook. And I really appreciate all the groups and the secret Facebook pages and the closed groups and just the way people are finding community online. That's how we find a lot of our people. Yeah. So everybody yeah. should check out everything having to do with Janelle. Oh, thank you. Join in the conversation too, yeah. And buy yeah, your book. Please join us over there. It's a great spot. It's a very supportive, great spot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. We really love talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Great. Thanks, Janelle. All right. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. 
Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.